Last week when we looked at chapter 39 together, it, it was really a chunk of, of the biblical text that dealt with a, a specific period of Joseph's life, and that was the period where he was a slave in Potiphar's household. Tonight we, we move on and we look at a, a, the next uh, chunk of his life, uh, and this time he's a prisoner. Um, and so we're going to look actually at two chapters this evening. We've only read one of them. We'll look at chapters 40 and 41, the, the passage that deals with the, the time of Joseph being imprisoned in Egypt. At the beginning of chapter 40, just to give you some idea of what's going on in Joseph's life, he's been in, in slavery and then in prison for over 10 years at this point, somewhere between 10 and 11 years. Now, uh, you can work that out from the biblical text. Uh, we know that when he was kidnapped and sold into slavery, in chapter 37, we're told that he's 17 years old. When he's finally released uh, from prison, uh, we're told in chapter 41 that he was 30 years old. So for 13 years of his life, he, he's either a, a slave or he's imprisoned. Uh, and at the start of chapter 40, we can guess that he's about 10 years somewhere between 10 and 11 years uh, of slavery and imprisonment. Chapter 40 takes up the story of two of Pharaoh's closest employees, his cupbearer who kept the wine in his glass and his baker who kept the bread on his table. And they've both displeased Pharaoh. We're not told how, but we simply know that they have. And they've ended up in prison under Joseph's care. Now, you remember last week we made a point. We weren't sure at the end of chapter 39, whether, whether Potiphar really thought Joseph was guilty or not. In fact, we, we suspected that maybe he didn't think Joseph was guilty of sexual assault on his wife after all. And I think there's another hint in this chapter because we notice in, in verse 4 of chapter 40 that the captain of the guard, now that's Potiphar, or, or presumably still Potiphar, he's giving Joseph responsibility over the some of the most important prisoners. So Potiphar, who had been used to trusting Joseph over all the years, is still uh, putting significant prisoners in his charge here. He's continuing to trust Joseph. So I think it's another glimpse that even Potiphar doesn't suspect Joseph in all that's gone on. We're told here that the cupbearer and the baker both had dreams and that they were both dejected. Now, probably an insight into the the culture of the time helps us at this point. In Egypt, it was taken for granted that dreams had a predictive quality. So if you had a dream, you absolutely needed to know the meaning of it because your, your future depended on, on the outcome. So there was a whole industry in, in Egypt built around the interpretation of dreams uh, there was always an expert on hand to interpret your dream for you. Now, the problem for these guys is that they're locked away in prison, and presumably they don't have access to the kind of people who can interpret their dreams. That's what's getting them down. It struck me that this simple interaction with these two Egyptian prisoners, it, it reveals just another wee bit to us of the character of Joseph that God is forming at this point. Joseph saw that they were both dejected. Now, at a point in his life where he could easily have been feeling sorry for himself, uh, where he, he could have been thinking, stuff everybody else, I, I have enough on my own plate, my own life's hard enough. Somehow he sees through all of that to the, 
the heartache on, on the faces of these men. And it seems to me that in that regard, again, Joseph is, is a model and a type of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think of the gospel accounts of Jesus. Time and time again, they tell us of occasions where Jesus saw suffering people and had compassion on them. No matter what was going on around him, no matter how big the crowd was or how busy he was, his heart would go out to these pitiful individuals when he'd see them here and there. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And it struck me that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're to model this aspect of Jesus' character. We can't be too busy, too preoccupied with ourselves or even our, our church projects to miss those people who need, need our help, our, our love and our care. We need to develop that sensitivity to the hurts of family members, of friends, of colleagues and of neighbors. I think that's a, a lovely quality that we see here just in passing with Joseph in prison. As soon as he discovers the problems that these men have, he points them to the answer and, and he quite simply says, listen, don't worry that the usual dream interpreters aren't at hand here. God interprets dreams. Tell me and I'll interpret your dreams for you. So here we have Joseph. Remember, he's previously a a dreamer. Remember, in the, in the narrative, we're introduced to him as somebody who dreams dreams. But now, all of a sudden, he's become an interpreter of dreams. And all of that not in his own strength. Very naturally and very quickly, he, he deflects attention from himself and he says, God is the one who interprets dreams. He refuses to take credit for anything that God is doing through him. Now, we don't need to dwell too long on the content of the cupbearer's and the baker's dreams or even on the interpretation that Joseph offered. Both men's dreams regarded their future. The cupbearers spoke of his restoration back into his position in Pharaoh's court and the bakers of his impending doom. Joseph spoke, and I want you to notice this, he spoke to both of these men honestly and clearly and even-handedly of their fate. Maybe it's because I'm a preacher that I was struck with Joseph's integrity at this point. He was willing to speak the bad news every bit as well as the good news. As well as giving God's word to the cupbearer in words that he would hear as good news, he was willing to, to speak God's word to the baker in terms that clearly wouldn't be heard as good news. Joseph gave the interpretation to the baker when he knew the message had no feel-good factor. He knew that the message wouldn't make him popular with the baker, but he spoke God's word simply and clearly because they were true. It struck me that I want to be like Joseph in this regard. I want to speak all of God's word to all of God's people all of the time, regardless of whether that word will sound in that moment like good news or if it must on occasions fall as bad news. Friends, some aspects of God's word must 
sound as bad news. The Bible teaches clearly, for example, that all have sinned, everyone without exception. If we're not taking that seriously, then, then that's going to come as bad news when we hear it. God's word goes on and tells us that God can't look at our sin. In fact, his wrath falls on human sin. Friends, that's bad news. And God's judgment on all is on all who carry their own sin. They're destined for eternal death. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's bad, bad news. Friends, as the one who's charged with bringing you God's word in this place, I need to bring you that kind of news. If I don't do that, then I'm unfaithful to God's word. And quite frankly, I'm a, I'm a rubbish minister of the gospel. I let you down. If you're here this evening, and you have any doubts about the realities that I'm talking about just now, please open your ears and your hearts to the living word of God. If you're not yet in Christ, if you haven't experienced the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can give, then you are in great danger. The wrath of God hangs over you. It's only because of God's infinite patience that you're allowed to breathe the next breath. Friends, I've said that I want to preach the bad news as well as the good. Well, I love, I absolutely love to preach the good news of the gospel. We have talked here about the bad news. Let me remind you of the good. For as much as it's true that every single one of us are sinners, the wonderful news about that is that it puts us exactly in the place where we can know God's salvation. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If we're in that club, then he came for us. And that, friends, is good news. We know and we've said that our sin incurs God's wrath. But we know, too, that we can be forgiven if only we confess our sins and come in the name of Jesus. And we know that our judge, the judgment of God is eternal death on all who still carry their own sin. But we know also, don't we, that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, that's the good news. That's the glorious news of the gospel. And in the end, it struck me that the bad news is only ever a prelude to the good news. The bad news is only ever the dark context where the light of the glory of the gospel is fully seen. What a privilege I have to, to stand before you week by week and to preach God's word and the glory of the gospel to you. If you ever want to talk to me about these things, about the realities of, of sin and salvation and forgiveness, please come and do that at any time. Tap me on the shoulder as you leave a service. Phone me, email me. I'd be only too glad to share with you the good news of the gospel of Jesus.
And so it was that Joseph spoke the word of God to these two Egyptian prisoners. They didn't have to wait too long to see the accuracy uh, of his interpretations. Three days later on Pharaoh's birthday, he restored the cupbearer and he hanged the chief baker. The narrator tells us in verse 22 that all of this occurred just as Joseph had said. you reflect on this this incident it's a wonderful moment again for joseph he's shown himself to be a man of god he's faithful to god the predictions god has given him are true it's all going swimmingly that is until we get to the last verse of the chapter there we're told that the chief cupbearer didn't remember joseph he forgot him now, this, this moment of amnesia on the part of the cupbearer is a catastrophe. Joseph's begged him, listen, when you get out of here, remember me to Pharaoh. Tell him about the injustice I've experienced, and maybe he will then set me free. The cupbearer is Joseph's only possible escape route. And it's as a result of his forgetfulness that Joseph's left languishing in this cell. It's another one of those moments, isn't it? And we've had a few so far in the life of Joseph where we can't help but feel that it's all gone horribly wrong. Perhaps God was with him in the past, but he's clearly not with him now. If God was with him in Potiphar's household, if he was with him when he first came into prison, God can't possibly be with him now. Things aren't working out. Friends, are we beginning to learn the lessons of God's word? Are we? The reality that God is with us doesn't mean that our lives will always be easy. And it doesn't mean that our lives will be as we would wish them to be. Is your work life? difficult just now in a congregation of this size I can only imagine that for a number of us that's a reality that doesn't mean that God isn't with you is your home life and your family life putting you under strain that you feel that you can't bear for much longer well if you're in Christ Know that God is with you. No matter how difficult and trying that situation is. Joseph would gladly have left his cell hot on the heels of the cupbearer, but it wasn't to be. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't God's time. When we move into chapter 41, we learn that it'll be a full two years before Joseph will be called out of his prison cell. Think of that, two years. And in chapter 41, we learn how it finally came to be. Again, it's more dreams in this chapter. This time it's Pharaoh's turn to dream, and he dreams first of seven skinny cows eating seven fat ones. 
then of seven skinny heads of grain eating seven fat ones. And in the light of what we said earlier about Egyptian culture and dreams, we're not surprised that Pharaoh wants to know what's going on. He sends for his magicians and his wise men the next morning to tell him what his dreams meant. And none of them was able to help him. Finally, the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph. He remembers this Hebrew prisoner with his skill for interpreting dreams. And the cupbearer tells Pharaoh of all that's happened. How Joseph interpreted his and the baker's dreams. And of how things turned out exactly as he had interpreted. Do you now see God's providence in this? Joseph was forgotten two years ago. It wasn't the right time. Joseph is remembered now because it is the right time. He's called out of prison at just that time when he can play a unique role in the future of his people and and the vast thousands and millions living in the ancient Near East at that time. God's timing really is perfect. Maybe you're waiting for something to happen in your life just now. You're waiting for a new job, a new relationship, something to change in your family. I wonder, do you believe in God's providential timing? Do you believe that God not only knows what is best for you to have, but that he knows when it's best for you to receive it? Do we believe that? Do we trust God's timing? Joseph is called from his prison cell at precisely the right time. This is our first encounter with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is one of the most important and powerful men on the planet at this moment. In his empire, he's treated as a god. So Joseph can't come before him smelling of of prison. He needs to be shaven, shaven in the head, uh, shaven in the face. That was the Egyptian way. He's washed, he's perfumed, he's clothed in a manner fit to stand before Pharaoh. It's an incredible situation, really. Here we have the great Pharaoh with all the intellectual resources of Egypt and all the the magician's uh, knowledge available to him. And he asks a foreign prisoner for help. He says, I've had a dream. No one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you, That when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. The spotlight falls on Joseph. Picture yourself in Joseph's position for just a moment. How flattering is this? How incredibly gratifying. A world superpower calls you so that he might ask your help. You'd want to make the most of that opportunity, wouldn't you? You'd want to be like one of those candidates on Alan Sugar's uh, The Apprentice, 
You'd want to make sure that you grasp the opportunity, that you show what you can do, uh, so that when, when Pharaoh's next cabinet reshuffle comes along, so that you're featuring in a position of power in Egypt. Steady, Joseph. You don't want to bottle this. Make the most of this. What does Joseph say in response to Pharaoh's flattering request? I can't do it. What? Have you lost your mind, Joseph? It doesn't matter if you know how to interpret the dream or not. Bluff it. Say something. How's he going to know if you've got it right or not? Blag it. Go for it. Put yourself forward. Show your, your best. Fortune favors the brave. Joseph says no. I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Here we have another just wonderful moment of clarity on the, on the person of Joseph. And again, it shows him to be a, a man of God in the making. He refuses to take credit for God's work. We already mentioned this and now we focus on it for a moment. When Pharaoh asks for his help to interpret these dreams, Joseph gives God the credit that he's due. I think this is something we need to be careful of in our church life. Maybe particularly as, as leaders in the church, do we know how to give God his due? Or do we allow human adulation and recognition to sit too easily? on our own shoulders. It's a dangerous thing, God's word teaches, to take praise and glory for ourselves that rightly belongs to God. I was reading recently in Acts 12 and I saw a very stark warning there. On this particular occasion, Herod Agrippa, we're told that he was wearing royal robes, he sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to his people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And we're told in verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, the angel of the Lord struck him down and he died. Are there leaders in the church today who too easily take for themselves credit that belongs only and rightfully to God. Friends, God's word warns us that that's a dangerous thing to do. And Joseph stands here as a shining example of one who'll never do it. Anytime somebody compliments him, anytime somebody tries to blow him up, he says no. Only after Joseph has made it clear in whose power he acts. He listens as Pharaoh recounts the content of his dreams. And he listens to Pharaoh tell of the inability of his dream advisors to shed any light on the matter. And then Joseph gives his interpretation. He says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. 
God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. We've got a picture of this. It's dramatic in the extreme. Here's a Hebrew slave prisoner, someone who by rights Pharaoh should not even take any notice of. And he stands before Pharaoh, whose people think him a god, and he says, this is what my God is about to do. And Joseph doesn't leave it at that. Because he's entirely convinced of what God's about to do, uh, these predictions given in this dream to Pharaoh, he goes ahead and he gives Pharaoh policy advice. Tells him how he should deal with this impending surplus and famine. He says, appoint a viceroy, appoint local overseers, get a national rationing system up and running. So at this point, Joseph provides Pharaoh not only with supernatural interpretation of his dreams, but also a a wisdom, a God-given and God-enhanced wisdom for the good of those around him. I want to stop here for a moment because when I take these two chapters together and I see Joseph's willingness to to give guidance first to the cupbearer, the baker, and now to Pharaoh, I'm left wondering, do we have anything to offer to those around us in need of guidance? Now, now I I recognize that there's there's something supernatural going on here this ability to to interpret the dreams. But I think we see in Joseph here a, a man who is in touch with God, who knows God's will and God's ways, and is able to share that with people around him. I wonder, do we have any of that kind of wisdom to offer to those who are lost and confused in the world around us? I believe that we should. You see, the Holy Spirit, God's word teaches, is the only giver of true human wisdom. And when the Spirit of God is on us, we should expect over time to become wise people. That's why Paul is able to write to the believers in Ephesus, I keep asking that God may give you his spirit of wisdom. And it struck me that as this wisdom grows in us, it's another one of those areas where we grow in the likeness of Jesus. Do you remember, Jesus, when he, when he walked on the earth, he struck people in two or three significant ways. One was his, his power to heal. But another was in the wisdom of his teachings. You see that quite often when Jesus gives a lengthy address, the guys in the crowd nudge each other and they say, have you ever heard the like of it? Or as, as it's properly written in Matthew's gospel, where did this man get this wisdom? When the spirit of God is on a person, the wisdom of God becomes evident in their life.
followers of Jesus Christ should be passionate about growing in God-given wisdom. We should take the writer of Proverbs at his word. He says, wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Friends, I think this is one of the ways in which God calls us to be a blessing in the world. And it's one that the church has maybe missed, by and large. Think of what a blessing we could be in our homes, in our families, in our friendship circles, if we became a fountain of the wisdom of God welling up for them. I don't think that's unrealistic. I think that's an entirely biblical view of what God longs to do in us as his spirit works. Pharaoh's impressed. You can see that here in Sora's officials. So they take the wisdom of God in Joseph and they make Joseph, it's quite, quite funny here, Joseph says, appoint a boss uh, to, to rule over all Egypt and they all turn to him and say, yeah, you do it. It's like being on a committee. Have you ever suggested anything on a committee? Uh, as soon as you make a good suggestion, everybody turns and says, yeah, you do it. Well, there's a wee bit of that going on here. We've covered a lot of ground this evening, and I want to, to close by focusing our thoughts and trying, trying to bring a, a summary to what kind of things we've learned in these two chapters. Look at verse 37. Pharaoh turns to his officials. He speaks of Joseph. And he says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God. I want to think for just a moment what it means to be a person who has or who is full of the spirit of God. To listen to some people, you'd, you'd think that a person would have to be speaking in tongues or performing some supernatural acts to be recognized as a person who is, is full of the Spirit of God. And I don't doubt that sometimes God works in these ways, and I certainly don't deny that God may have been working in these ways in Joseph's life. He seems to have given him that capacity for, for interpretation. In particular, I don't know, Joseph may have been speaking in tongues. We don't know all of that very, very clearly. But one thing we do know, and one thing the narrative does make clear, the people who came into close contact with Joseph recognized that God was with him, that the Spirit was on him. But how was that? What was it that convinced them of God's presence with this man? Well, let's, let's reach back a couple of chapters and bring it all together. What was it for Potiphar? Was it Joseph speaking in tongues? Was it his charismatic gifting? I don't think so. I think it was the way Joseph worked in the field with integrity. It was the meticulous work he did in the kitchen. It was the reliability he showed when he was given positions of management in Pharaoh's or in Potiphar's household. That spoke to Potiphar of the Spirit of God. 
What was it for the prison warder? Was it not that he knew that he could hand Joseph any responsibility and that he could trust him entirely with that responsibility? Was that not what led him to say, God is with him? And for Pharaoh now, yes, I'm sure he was struck by Joseph's supernatural ability to interpret his dreams, but he's also won over by Joseph's down-to-earth practical wisdom. Joseph's ability to see life for what it is and to share that with him. Take these qualities together and I think we begin to get a picture of the spirit-filled man or the spirit-filled woman. One who is entirely trustworthy, full of wisdom and integrity in all their dealings. Friends, God may give us supernatural gifts. And let's be open to that. He may allow us to speak in tongues. And I don't know, maybe some of you have had that experience. But what he wants for every single one of us is that we have his spirit in us. This spirit who expresses himself in everyday ways, like excellent work, integrity, and wisdom. A spirit who makes us more like Jesus. Friends, that's the spirit that people in Egypt saw in Joseph. And it's the spirit that God longs to place in us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the powerful and wonderful things that you can do in a person whose life is under the control and rule of your spirit. Lord, when we see a, a story like that of Joseph and we see what you chose to do through him and what you were able to do through him, on the one hand, we're inspired, Lord, but, but maybe also a little demotivated. We don't believe that you could do the same through us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the full glory of a human life under the control of your spirit. Give us a new grasp of the integrity that you long to, to form in us, of the reliability, of the wisdom that is our birthright as those who are filled with your spirit. And Lord, help us now to move forward in our lives never content with the status quo, never happy to stay as we are, but open to the deep, deep transforming work that you long to do in us. Father God, give us your spirit. Make us more like Jesus. We pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.